0: Hi, everybody. This is Kamran Bukhari. I'm the Senior Director for Eurasian Security and Prosperity at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy, and welcome to another episode of Eurasian Connectivity. Today, my guest is Professor Jennifer Murtazashvili, and she needs no introduction for those who follow Eurasia, Central Asia, but I'm going to introduce her anyway. She's the Founding Director of the Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh. And she's also a professor there at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. She's a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome to Eurasian connectivity, Jennifer. So we are speaking with each other at a very interesting time. The world is focused on the Middle East. I guess this episode is going to attempt to sort of say, hey, well, we need to focus on the Middle East. There's a whole world out there, and let's not forget that there is another war that's been going on in Ukraine, and it hasn't ended, and it has implications for both the Black Sea Basin and the Caspian Sea Basin and just broader Eurasia. I'm going to ask you to begin with some high-level thoughts. What are you watching? These are areas that fall very well within your area of expertise. So what are you watching in Eurasia?
1: So I think we're just seeing a real realignment that's happening very slowly in the region. And of course, Russia has significant influence, has historic influence that that influence isn't going away, but it's changing, it's shifting. Russia's weakening, and of course, countries in Central Asia, for example, still remain fearful of Russia, have some benefit from Russia, but they're seeing the poor military performance of Russia in Ukraine. I think that is having such an effect on how countries in this region really think about Russia. And that's not just true for Central Asia, it's true for China, it's true for Afghanistan. I think it's true for so many countries in the region, which had expected Russia, okay, if it couldn't play a major economic role, it had a lot of economic confusion. Looking at this shift has really created new opportunities for so many other players. And I think the other thing that we really have to think about from a micro level, from a geographic level, is looking at the remarkable political and economic reforms in Uzbekistan. Now, I lived in Uzbekistan for a long time. Those reforms, you know, in terms of the democracy, haven't been as significant, I think, as we may have hoped. But the fact that this once autarkic country that has a really important geographic role, because it touches on like five countries in the region. When it was closed off, a lot of possibilities for exchange and trade were simply not possible. When this opened up, we're seeing a lot of new possibilities, especially going from north to south, from Central Asia to South Asia, which were really unthinkable just a few years ago.
0: Well, you've started us off on Uzbekistan, so I was there back in July for the election. And yes, I mean, it's a remarkable place. It's come a long way since 2016 when the former president, Islam Karimov, passed on. And we have the current president, Shavkat Mirziyoyev take over. I mean, there's been a sea change, if you will, a rapid sort of opening up of the country, reforms. And this is sort of the heart, the center of gravity of Central Asia with, what, 36 million people and growing and soon to be 40 million in another decade or so, probably less. And it's right there in the center of the region with borders with all other four Central Asian countries, as well as Afghanistan. So you mentioned that connection with South Asia. How are you looking at Afghanistan? This is a key piece of the puzzle. If there's going to be trade, there has to be some predictability, to say the least, What are you looking at and what are you noticing happening when it comes to Afghanistan and that connectivity with South Asia?
1: So Afghanistan, as you well know, is desperate for this connectivity. And the economic crisis that the country has plunged into, I mean, it wasn't looking great, you know, before the U.S. withdrawal. I think this is really important for people to remember. There's this notion that the U.S. withdrew and the economy cratered. Well, the economy was not really in very good shape before. And it was a terribly violent region. The civil conflict, you know, was raging. Thousands of people were dying each year. So what we've seen since U.S. withdrawal is this kind of power vacuum in the region, but a power vacuum that hasn't been met by fear. So I think that surprised a lot of observers of the region, like, okay, the Central Asian States, China, like, oh, no, the Taliban's taking over. That just wasn't the case. Um, I think there was a lot of comfort dealing with the Taliban. You know, we've seen diplomats from Central Asia, for example, deal with the Taliban for many years. And the Taliban are desperate to have this connectivity, this north-south connectivity, east-west, whatever it can do in order to you know, build an economy. Now, the Central Asians, for example, really see this as a positive situation. They've had plans in the works for a very long time, but there was never peace and stability. Well, now we have sort of the absence of war. I wouldn't call it peace by any stretch of the imagination. But we do have an absence of war inside of the country, and that creates these real opportunities for these rail lines, gas lines, and so forth. But now the one piece that's missing is this international financing. So if the Taliban are under these enormous sanctions, who's going to finance this? So now we're seeing a huge press, you know, and kind of scrappy, very creative ad hoc solutions coming from Central Asia into South Asia. China sort of standing by nodding, kind of looking to see how this all plays out. And this is a much more bottom-up approach I think to the kind of integration that's really important than sort of these top-down initiatives that we saw for many years promoted by the state department, you remember the Silk Road strategy, and I would even suggest by China through Belt and Road initiative. So, you know, Afghanistan has asked China to be part of Belt and Road and China sort of nods and says, of course, of course you're part of Belt and Road. Afghanistan, the Taliban have asked to be part of CPEC, which is the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which I'm sure you could talk a lot about. And this has been sort of a failed effort, I would call it, very costly effort by China, its sort of belt and road initiative inside of Pakistan. The, the Taliban have said, you know, can we loop into this? You know, Can we be part of CPEC? And China's looking at this saying, well, this hasn't been very successful, but it makes the Taliban happy. And we're really concerned about the security situation inside of Afghanistan. So of course, the Taliban, yes, you can join CPEC. So it makes the Taliban happy, but we're not really seeing a lot of investment come out of this.
0: So you mentioned China and you mentioned Afghanistan. And I have a follow up question to what you just said. So Daniel Markey has written that fascinating book on China's westward march towards Eurasia. It's a dimension that doesn't get discussed a whole lot because the overwhelming focus is on the maritime space in the Western Pacific in the context of the U.S.-China competition. And then you have India coming into this as well. But China seems to be more interested in, yes, there's the constant military operations, the air flights, the naval vessels doing exercises around Taiwan. But the thing that doesn't get picked up a whole lot in the sort of public discourse is there's just far more that China is doing in Central Asia than it is in the maritime space. So, what do you see as China's approach to Central Asia? post-U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. You have touched on it a little bit, but this place needs security, and the United States isn't doing that anymore. The Russians seem very, very incapable of doing it, at least for now. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, but as long as they're in Ukraine, they're not going to pay much attention to any place else. They couldn't do much in the South Caucasus with the flipping of the balance of power between Azerbaijan and Armenia. It's almost like the Turks saw any opportunity. They helped the Azerbaijanis and the Azerbaijanis did something that basically shifting everything that existed since 1994 in terms of who controlled what territory. So in this context, security is a big issue. Do you see China, it's pushing in geoeconomically, but do you see China also looking at filling that security vacuum because they need security in order to be able to do business, no?
1: I mean, slowly they are, right? I mean, we know that to be the case. So, you know, just to your point about Azerbaijan and Armenia, I think what happened there effectively killed the CSTO. Like when you see Armenians protesting for the United States and Armenia is such a key important player in the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. So this is the treaty organization that Russia created to sort of counter NATO. This to me signals the complete collapse of that alliance. And you match that with Kazakhstan and Kazakhstan's refusal to stand by Russia in terms of its invasion of Ukraine. This was a country that had called in Russian troops, right, just a month before Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine, you know, called upon the CSTO. And now we're seeing this completely, I think, disintegrate. We are seeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine cause the collapse of the security alliance. So, yes, we can't look at China's rise in terms of provision of security without thinking about Russia's weakening in this area. Now, people who look at this region, this Eurasian heartland, this continental part of Eurasia, have always said, you know, Russia provides the security, China provides the investment. We're going to see a shift in this. Now, I'm not an expert in China. I don't have any insights into what China's doing, except for what I'm observing in the places that I care about in this heartland. So I'm not an expert on Chinese security policy by any stretch of the imagination, but now we're seeing the establishment of these Chinese outposts into Tajikistan, for example, and these security outposts. They're not full military bases, but they've been going up for the past several years, which shows us that China, number one, doesn't believe that Russia has the capacity to protect this border between Afghanistan and Central Asia. So this is the Tajik Afghan frontier, where Russia says they have 10,000 troops there. We don't know the status of these troops. I was actually talking to colleagues in Tajikistan just a couple of weeks ago saying, give me verification that these troops are still here. How many are still there? If Russia has this deficit of troops that it's trying to recruit into Ukraine, how can we be sure that there are 10,000 troops remaining there? And then we've seen, you know, the poor military performance. So China looks at this and, of course, is concerned. And if China is putting how many hundreds of thousands into internment camps or concentration camps in China because it's concerned about Uyghurs, it's going to be very, very concerned about what it's seeing inside of Afghanistan. So the Taliban are very Clever, because they're keeping these small groups of Uyghurs around, It's telling China that it's getting rid of them, but it's very helpful to the Taliban in particular to have these small pockets of Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, Ansrullah, people from the Ansrullah forces from Tajikistan, the East Turkestan Islamic movement there inside of Afghanistan, because it gives them leverage against China or neighbors. So this is a long way of me saying we're only going to see China's security influence grow. But China, I think, is very keen not to make the same mistakes the United States has made. I think is very worried about overstretch, very worried about any kind of imperialism, doesn't want to get involved in nation building, state building. So it's going to be very strategic in the way that it does this. And we're going to see China, I think, focus more on protecting itself. And that's why we are seeing these outposts in Tajikistan, right? I see a China as really interested in containing rather than projecting force.
0: So you talk about the Central Asian states, and you mentioned earlier the political reforms in Uzbekistan. you got something similar going on in Kazakhstan. And in this sort of environment of reform, of change, I mean, it's happening. This internal domestic political economic transformation is taking place at a time of great strategic, if you will, commotion. You look at the strategic environment of Central Asia, you have Russia mired in uncertainty, to put it mildly. You have China trying to deal with a world where the United States is not in Afghanistan. Russia is oscillating on a wavelength and frequency that's not familiar and it has its interests to pursue. So in the midst of all of this, you see the United States, you see the West trying to push into Central Asia. You just had the C5 plus one first ever summit with President Biden meeting all five of his counterparts in New York. So yes, there's some symbolism attached to it. It's significant. We've never had a presidential level meeting of that kind. And yes, the same Central Asian heads of state met with President Xi before they met with President Biden, and they keep meeting Putin. So this is neither here nor there. But we see this push And you see this talk of a Trans-Caspian energy and trade corridor. So there's a lot of Western interest. And so this is almost like the Chinese are pushing into Eurasia and they're kind of somewhere in Uzbekistan. They're not quite there yet in the Trans-Caspian region, but that's where the West wants to come in. And Turkey is an emerging player as well. So how do you see sort of this region reacting to this growing if you will, great power competition. So I
1: think what it's doing is it's giving the region a heck of a lot of confidence because there's so much interest You know, I always tell this story 20 years ago when I was living in Uzbekistan, I would hear these government officials talk about like this is before 9-11, right? I'm sure I've repeated this on other podcasts, but it's really important to remember. You Americans are so worried about this. Islamic extremism, we got this. We're not worried about this. If you see instability across the post-Soviet space, there's only one entity behind it, right? And that's Russia. We're talking about the era right after the Tajik Civil War had ended. If we look at Nagorno-Karabakh, we've just talked about all of these kinds of issues, Georgia. I mean, Ukraine, every place that there's been violence, and instability across this space, Russia has been very involved in this. And so with the weakening of Russia, we are just in the beginning phases, I think, of seeing sort of a recession of Russian influence in terms of its security prowess. And I don't think that's necessarily going to be a very peaceful process. And Russia is going to want to use the old tools that it has in its toolkit to really make sure that it can continue provoking and illustrate its power. So we're seeing this confidence Central Asia as it deals with the United States, China. Everybody is jockeying for this influence, but I think it's important not to overstate the influence that the United States and even the EU can have compared to China. I mean, China is a neighbor. It is right there. The U.S. has an attention span of the past six months, let's say, that it's really cared about this, despite the fact that it had almost 100,000 troops in the region and didn't really have a very good strategy for the region. So I'm not confident that the U.S. really is going to do anything in a significant manner. It'll play a role at the margins. Yes, it can encourage the IFIs to provide some financing for some of these trans caspian projects, but I don't see the U.S. and, you know, even the EU maybe having a more significant role here. But I think the concern is, is that you see all of Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan having these multi-vectored foreign policies, They're all screaming multi-vector. I mean, Kazakhstan was the OG multi-vector foreign policy country. Now we're seeing Uzbekistan sort of mimic this, and it's great, but it's a very positive sum. You can take from everyone. We're friends with everyone. Until something really bad happens, then you have to sort of take sides. But for now, that's working. And you're seeing these countries exert a lot more confidence. But the threat isn't from without, it's actually from within. So we're talking about, okay, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan have had these reforms. But if you look about what's happened, especially in Central Asia over the past 18 months, is we've seen incredible instability in the region. In fact, we've seen more domestic instability in the region than we've seen in the past 18 months than we've seen in a very long time. The first interstate conflict between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, right, in the Fergana Valley. And that is an interstate conflict. That is not just farmers and some water. We're talking about an interstate war, something we didn't think would be possible. Not a war, not a full-scale war, but certainly a conflict, a conflagration that if, where you're seeing two militaries of two countries engaging one another you're seeing uprisings in Karakal, Pakistan. We saw those domestic unrest inside of Kazakhstan, where Tokayev called in the CSTO to help. We're seeing Gorno-Badakhshan unrest. And this is really prolonged. So you're seeing confidence on one hand, but real insecurity domestically. And I'm not sure how long these states can really reconcile this. They want to have all of this investment. They want to bring in all these foreign partners. But unless they're able to stabilize this by using something other than force, because we know how tenuous that could be. And I think Central Asia has had quite a holiday over the past 30 years in terms of its own stability, with the exception of that very bloody Tajik civil war. We're going to see new leaders come to power. We've seen incredible instability inside of Kyrgyzstan that's made that country really hard to have as a reliable partner. So I don't think that these elections in Uzbekistan, I'm not sure how happy people are, you know, internally, for example, with that. I think inside of Kazakhstan, you've seen Takayev promise the world, yet backtrack on that. You saw the same thing in Uzbekistan, make big promises in terms of domestic reforms and then backtrack. We didn't see the prior generation of leaders do that kind of thing. They didn't promise anything they hardly delivered. And so seeing that, I think, really signals a kind of weakness that people haven't seen before sort of my sense. So you're seeing this real domestic insecurity while you're seeing the need to have this global projection. And I think that's something really that I'd like your listeners to watch out
0: for. Well, I'm going to pick up on what you just talked about in terms of the conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. But before I do that, I want to remind my listeners that we're speaking with Professor Jennifer Mutazashvili. She's the founding director of Center for Governance and Markets at the University of Pittsburgh, where she is also a professor in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. So you said that there is this conflict that is emerging, this interstate conflict. so, If you're Tajikistan and you are already worried about what's happening on your southern flank with Afghanistan, and you're the only country in Central Asia that has a hostile attitude towards the Taliban, everybody else is kind of playing friendly, can you afford to have like a two-front situation where you're worried about the north, you're worried about the south, and then there is this transition that has to take place because President Imam Ali Rahman is not going to rule forever. And there are rumors or rumor intelligence that didn't pass it on to his son. And so but nothing is known for sure. And then he not too long ago, I guess it was last year when he openly complained to Putin that, hey, you don't care about us anymore and you're so focused on Ukraine. And so clearly he's worried that the security situation in his neighborhood could leave him in a very, very dicey situation. And he's not confident that the Kremlin will come to his aid. And you said earlier, hey, how many troops are there? Is this a priority area for Russia while it's focused on its strategic front yard? So give us a sense of what is Dushanbe thinking? I mean, with this Kyrgyz fault line, if you will, and then there's Afghan and everything else that's happening.
1: So, I mean, I think Rahman, if we think about what's going on in Tajikistan, yes, there was a lot of bluster there right as the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan was collapsing and it was really funny to see Rahman give these medals to it was like Rabani and to Ahmed Shamas who posthumously and it was like he was trying to instigate this kind of Tajik nationalism, which I thought actually wasn't directed at Islam at all. To me, he was mobilizing this kind of nationalism in response to what was going on in Kyrgyzstan. So a lot of people focused on what he was doing He's a vis Afghanistan and he was going to stand up to the Taliban. I think that was all about Kyrgyzstan and mobilizing public opinion in that direction. I think what we've seen in terms of Tajik, Tajikistan's policy towards Afghanistan, towards the Taliban, is now mimicking what we're seeing in Uzbekistan. It's not quite as friendly and they're not quite as open about it, but they've signed those agreements to transfer electricity just the way the Uzbeks have done. Yes, they've allowed Ahmed, Ahmed Massoud to maintain sort of a skeleton office inside of Dushanbe, but they know that no one's really clamoring to support that. And frankly, who wants to support something like that? Russia. Russia. And in fact, we did see, I think, Ahmed Massoud either traveled to Russia or he met with a Russian delegation recently, which was very interesting because of this U.S.-Russian strategy. It supported negotiations with the Taliban because it really wanted to provoke U.S. weakness. It wanted to illustrate U.S. weakness. Well, now the Russians are so worried about what's going on inside of uh, Afghanistan that it's happy to have the former Northern Alliance buddies inside of Tajikistan who can kind of hedge with. And in fact, there was a CSTO declaration that was written over the summer. And it was written by Lavrov. The Russian foreign minister wrote in these declarations, not that I follow them so closely, I remember seeing this and it said, Lavrov like personally wrote this declaration. And it was about Afghanistan. It was about security in Afghanistan. And it said, look, we need a more inclusive government. We need participation of women. We need all of these sort of preconditions before Russia will recognize the Taliban. And it was the same week where President Biden, you remember that comment he made about Al-Qaeda? the Taliban, he said, they're kind of doing our bidding for us. The Taliban said they'd get rid of Al-Qaeda and they got rid of Al-Zawahiri for us. So look how smart I was. It was in August. It was the two year anniversary. That's what it was. And he made this comment saying, look how clever I am. The Taliban do what I say. And then you have the CSTO in law almost the same week saying the Taliban need to be more democratic. They need to be more inclusive. They need to promote women's rights. And I thought like, wow, what a strange change of fortune. It almost said the CSTO press release looked like something that the U.S. would have said three years ago. And now you see Lavrov saying this. Why does Lavrov care about that? Because the Russians know darn well, and so does Tajikistan, that unless the Taliban become more inclusive, do something about women, it's going to blow again. Because we look at these patterns of Afghan history. Even China is saying the same thing. You can't rule this way. It'll blow into civil war, and I think everyone sort of believe this narrative, Taliban 2.0 narrative, we're going to be more inclusive. Look at the Uzbek Taliban, look at the Tajik Taliban. In the New York Times, Haqqani wrote, we've changed. No, they've not changed. And countries in the region know that, especially Russia, especially Tajikistan. So they're hedging. But can Tajikistan afford a two-flank war? No. But is that what Tajikistan's doing? Absolutely not. It has really turned back its rhetoric towards Afghanistan, and you're seeing trade delegations coming now, and you're almost seeing like the same kind of normalization that you're seeing with the rest of the Central Asian republics.
0: So before we flip over to sort of the caucuses, I want to delve into that and pick your brain on it. Where do you see Iran in all of this? Now, Iran is so, quote unquote, busy. In the Middle East. And it's kind of like, if you will, disconnected from its northern flank. And the northern flank, from Tehran's point of view, is hostile given the relationship with Baku and the alignment between Azerbaijan and Israel, and now the alignment between Israel and Turkmenistan. So, where do you see Iran? I mean, is Iran going to do anything? I know they're really heavily involved in Afghanistan and they've got these relations with Tajikistan government and factions there because of, sort of the linguistic-historical relationship. But do you foresee Iran doing anything in Central Asia, or this is kind of like its strategic backyard that it just doesn't want to tamper with?
1: So we've seen under the new presidents definitely a move towards Central Asia that we hadn't seen, for example, in a very long time. And we saw President Mirzioya visits, Tehran a few months ago, and we've seen the Iranian leader visits Central Asia as well in recent months. So we're certainly seeing an uptick in these kinds of relations. And I think for the Central Asians, it has to do with Trans-Caspian issues, I think. It has to do with trade, commerce. We need more routes south. We need to divert our trade and commerce In other directions, because we just can't deal with Russia and frankly, don't want to be dependent on China. So, yes, China has a much greater influence in the region. But I think as China's influence increases, you do see, you know, kind of a public backlash against China. I mean, certainly in Kyrgyzstan. Right. You see this. You feel it. People are not afraid of talking about this. So that's what I think is driving that. Now, Iran is very interested. and, And I think this just sort of aligns with Iran's broader policy towards establishing itself as a greater, not just regional power, but continental power, let's say that. So they definitely see their role, of course, in the Middle East, but they want to be involved in the region. And they see the decline of Russia. They could complement, you know, Russia's decline, provide another perspective on it. But I don't think that Iran will ever be a serious player because of the Sunni-Shia issue was one and the real apprehension of countries about Iran's role in exporting terrorist organizations. That really frightens the Central Asian republics, and that's been a major tool of Iranian foreign policy. I mean, we're seeing this play out with Hamas, Hezbollah. Central Asian states aren't really interested in that.
0: So switching gears here to Iran's rival Turkey. So if you're Turkey and you were trying to expand influence into the Middle East, you couldn't because Iran had a big head start there and there are all sorts of complications. The Arab Spring didn't pan out the way that they thought it would. And then the economy of Turkey isn't doing well, but now on their northern flank with Russia weakening. You mentioned that the Central Asian states are gaining confidence because of that and looking at ways in which to take the multi-vector foreign policy doctrine to a whole new level. What do you see Turkey doing? Because they've already given us a sneak preview with their support for Azerbaijan in the NK war and really shifting the balance of power in the South Caucasus. So do we see this happening, this trend where Turkey asserts itself increasingly, albeit gradually, as and when Russia becomes encumbered by sanctions, by military losses? And so do you see Turkey playing a bigger role in The Black Sea Basin?
1: I mean, obviously, the Black Sea Basin is going to be its bread and butter, and that's where we're going to see Turkey really seek to expand its influence. But I am skeptical. I mean, yes, of course, I mean, Turkey's a NATO member, too, right? There's both opportunities for Turkey, but also a series of constraints on how it can behave because of its membership in NATO. And that gives it a lot of power. So, in terms of the Black Sea, It's going to want to demonstrate, I think, much more of its strategic dominance. It's funny, when I was in graduate school, I took a course on Russo-Turkish relations, and I thought I was signing up for a course on geopolitics. But it was about the treaties that governed um, the strait, you know, and how many treaties were written over this, how many wars were fought over control of the strait to get in and out of the Black Sea in Istanbul. And we forget that this has been a major source of contestation for centuries, not just decades, centuries. People fighting for control of this territory and the peace that we've seen in recent years, I think, is maybe an aberration. But looking at it, it's very interesting because you have this, um, if you look at the literal states and their involvement, you've seen what's going on in Romania, for example. Russia targeting those rockets that are hitting the Romanian border and now the Romanians really say that they're going to start fighting back against this. You know, you see the opportunity and then you see Turkey's relation to all of this. So Turkey's trying to assert itself, but Turkey has to compete against many others in this region who are quite powerful. So, in you know, Romania, for example, that's the EU. Then you have Georgia on the other side, which is sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. And then, of course, you have Russia. We do see like Turkey really trying to exert itself. One, we see this in the Middle East, what it's trying to do, Hamas and Gaza, but also now in Central Asia, where it's trying to assert itself. And just this past week, we saw this Turkic Union summit, which people really like to talk about. And how are we skeptical about the role of these regional players? There's been a lot of talk about Turkey, Iran, Qatar, and their role in this sort of continental landscape. I just don't think countries in the region really have an appetite for any of them in a really sustained way. They don't see countries that have their domestic act together. Qatar really plays, I mean, Qatar's sort of a different, you know, different story. They've got resources and they can mess around in ways that other countries can't without domestic constraints. But I'm very skeptical of claims that we're going to see the, you know, Turkey and Iran in particular, play a really significant role think regionally, they will, but anything extended far outside of their core territory, we're not.
0: So speaking of that, and we're coming up to our stopping point, so I'm going to ask you a last question, and it has to do with your idea of confidence. So we see confidence in, on the part of Azerbaijan now that it has taken control of Nagorno-Karabakh. You see Kazakhstan taking risks, if you will. Do you see countries like Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, which seem to be like the two principal players in, in terms of Trans Caspian trade, do you see them coming together in a significant way? And will we see in the coming years a significant rise in Trans Caspian commerce?
1: I think absolutely. I think this is where, like, the Iran Turkey things, you know, sort of from the outside, I'm not seeing it. So here, not only do you have interest, but you also have resources. So, of course, it'll take additional resources to develop this infrastructure. But with Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan, you're talking about two very resource-rich countries that can afford to invest, and they have skin in the game in ways that other countries do not or cannot. The only problem is dealing with the other literal problems, right, on the literal states, and that is Iran and Russia, and to the extent to which Russia will play a spoiler in any of this, which they very much can do. It was really interesting to see Azerbaijan was invited to that forum of Central Asian leaders right before they all went to the United States. I can't remember what forum it was. There's been so many of them that have brought them together. But I would actually want to maybe wrap up by asking you a question, and it's about Pakistan. It's a country we actually barely touched on during this discussion, where another place where I think we're seeing this confidence is Pakistan and just recently this past week Pakistan booted out 2 million Afghan refugees and I think that will test Afghanistan quite a lot for seeing you know 1.5 up to 2 million Afghan refugees now return to Afghanistan you have a very poor Afghanistan that can't really support these people there's no infrastructure there's no housing there's no nothing this will be a huge tax on Afghanistan and really will put enormous pressure on the Taliban. I'm curious to know from your perspective, what you really see is driving this. To me, this is an extraordinary amount of confidence for that government, this caretaker government to do this at a time when a lot of people have spoken about terrorism and the threat of the TTP. But this could really backfire against the Pakistanis and really destabilize things in the entire region in ways that I think Pakistan may not be very happy about.
0: Yeah, I don't see this as sort of a move that portrays confidence. It's more fear. It's more reactive. As for the caretaker government, it does what the military establishment wants it to do. It doesn't have that kind of mandate. So yeah, for them, it's a bit shocking that this was done during this time period. But it's kind of understandable that if you want to do something like that, do you want to wait for an elected government to come in that may or may not play ball and have its own imperatives and its own compulsions? So it's easy to get it done through a caretaker government. Now, what will actually happen? You know, what benefits this will bring to Islamabad? It's just not really clear to me. Pakistan is going through probably a very, definitely an unprecedented political economic situation. We've not seen this level of political chaos and economic chaos in the history. I mean, as you know, problems, whether political or economic, financial, they're chronic. They've been going on for decades. They go back to the earliest days of the founding of the Republic. But I think we're at a point where they run out of options. And when I say options, I mean, they just don't have the financial wherewithal to deal with the situation. So if you look at what, uh, the needs of Pakistan are and what they're able to sort of get as commitments in terms of financial assistance, whether from IFIs or whether from allied nations in the Gulf, China, the United States. There's a huge financing gap. So, I, I mean, they've definitely dodged a bullet in terms of a default. But it could be that this is like kicking the can down the road more than actually dodging the bullet. But we're just going to have to wait and see. There has to be some major strategic shifts vis-a-vis India. Afghanistan is a problem of their own making. They put their sort of weight behind the Taliban. And even before the Taliban came back in the 80s and the 90s, They were leaning towards one particular faction uh, and made enemies out of the minorities. And so I think that they don't have good solutions. So this is kind of like, oh, we have terrorists and we're we're financially broke. So let's send a message to the Taliban that we're not going to house your people anymore. So what does that do? How will the Taliban react? I mean, it doesn't solve their TTP problem. I mean, if they think they're going to solve the TTP problem this way, I mean, it operates on its own logic and it doesn't really have to do with Afghans living in Pakistan, because I mean, how many people are part of TTP versus two million Afghans? So, I mean, this is not going to solve their problem, But, but it's not the first time Pakistan does something attempting to solve a problem and creating more. So this is just kind of more of the same.
1: Yeah, I just can't imagine that countries in the region are really pleased with this. I mean, at all. Because it's going to create really, really challenging problems. I mean, we're only just beginning to see this.
0: I mean, if they want connectivity with Central Asia, this is the wrong thing to do. There's no shortage of problems with Afghanistan that Pakistan has to deal with. This is like creating another one and not solving the original problems. So, yeah. But anyway, I think we've come to the end of this episode. I'd love to keep talking because this is stuff that you and I are both interested in, and I'm sure our listeners are interested in, but we'll definitely have you back. Folks, that was Professor Jennifer Murtazashvili from the University of Pittsburgh. She was my guest for this particular episode. You can follow her work at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace at the University of Pittsburgh. She's on Twitter. And continue to follow us at New Lines Institute at www.newlinesinstitute.org. And this is Kamran Buhari signing off for now from Eurasian Connectivity. Take care.